Good evening, everyone. Well, we are we just sang the Apostles' Creed, and now we're going to read it. So if you'll just flash it up on the screen, guys. As you know, we've gone through, a, I believe, a nine-part series, a handful of us pastors here, on teaching the creeds of our faith. Go back, really, to the second century, first, second century, the first creed being Jesus is Lord. And through the years, the church fathers wanted to add more biblical statements of truth that we can build our lives on and be very, very secure with because as time went on, there was false teachers, there was heresy, there were um, um, truths that were not from Christ that were being promoted and people were getting confused. The body of Christ was getting confused. And so they started in the second century to build this statement, the Apostles' Creed. It's not scripture itself, but it's all scriptural truths that we put in a compact form. It sums up the Bible in a very compact form. So let's go ahead. We got it up there for tonight. There it is. Oh, it's, oh, there we go. Okay. Let's go, folks. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day he arose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. I believe, excuse me, the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion and saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. So our focus tonight is that we believe in the church, the communion of the saints. Over the past few decades, there have been movements where well-meaning, I dare to say uninformed believers, have pulled away from God's church or the fellowship. We've heard everything through the years from uh, my church is being with God alone in the mountains, or on the ocean shores. That's my church. The mountains and the beach. They say that I feel more of God's presence there than in an organized church. Which sort of makes sense to a degree. I mean, if you're going to be in the mountains by yourself, and you bring your Bible with you, and you're seeking the Lord, you've got a big decision to make, those are very, very precious times. I would never minimize that, as well as being on the beach. But the Bible would never recommend that for a steady diet. Um, a small study group had gathered, instead of going to a fellowship like ours or other churches, and they were talking about the fact that God's word was enough. They didn't really need a church. They had God's word. There was a group of them. And they had God's word and to direct them and the Holy Spirit to guide them and one another to support them. And one of the older gentlemen uh, just simply slipped out quietly and went into another room. And in a while they heard him out loud say these words. I'm sure glad it's just you and me, Lord. But Lord, just you and me together is nice, but it still gets kind of lonesome sometimes. We know that our walk with the Lord is preeminent over every relationship we have. But guess what? That same Lord that we worship and adore, it's his idea of the church of a group of believers, it's here his idea, of a group of believers that love him, 
that have found their eternal security and salvation through Christ that gather together to do what we just did tonight. It goes beyond that. That's his idea. And so um, that's what we're going to look at tonight. It wasn't God's intention for us as a steady diet to sit in a room by ourselves and read the scriptures because, as R.C. Sproul says, who was quite the theologian that just went to be with the Lord, always being alone with the Lord primarily, and that's it, always, actually could be dangerous to our spiritual life and well-being. Not that he's dangerous. It's no fellowship with believers, which is his command. So he commands us to fellowship and be a part of the church, and we don't do it. There's a problem there, because that's what he told us to do. He's not dangerous, but that idea can be dangerous. I have met people in the past um, that had their own little fellowship groups, like up in the mountains and things like that. And uh, they love the Lord, very, very sincere people. Very, very sincere people. But sometimes theologically they were a little off because they were left to themselves to try to interpret Scripture on their own. It was just a, just a little bit off. Lovely. So we need each other. We need the body of Christ. So some people say, well, why is the church so important? Why is the organized church so important? And the first thing I would say is because we need the encouragement of others in our life and for others to motivate us. We're living out in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. So look to this famous passage that you're probably worn out hearing through the years, Hebrews chapter 10, where we are actually given a warning by Paul regarding the necessity of not pulling away from the fellowship. Absolutely essential. This is Hebrews chapter 10. Am I the only one warm in here? Are you warm? If you can just, maybe Kelly, just one or two degrees down, thanks. It, it fluctuates, folks. It fluctuates. Okay. So this is chapter 10. One of the reasons it's, it's essential that we be a part of a church family. Those of us who know Christ. We're not talking about just any church. We're talking about the church. The church whose head is the Lord Jesus Christ and who's the very foundation of these church. The church. And so we read, if Paul wrote Hebrews, some people think he did. He says, uh, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. And by the way, what we just said today together was called a confession of our hope and our belief in the scriptures and in the Lord Jesus. We confessed it with our mouth and from our heart. And so he says, let us therefore hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. We're not up one day, down the next. We're not considering whether we should continue to follow Christ or not. James says those who listen to the word, for example, and don't actually do it, are like a wave of the sea tossed to and fro. They're up one day, down the next, sure this day, not sure the next. And of course, of course we're all at different places of growth, and we have a little bit of that in our own life. But he's telling us the things we've confessed, the things we stake our life on, do not waver from them. Don't waver. Don't go AWOL. We're in God's army. Don't go AWOL. Don't waver. Don't matter. It doesn't matter how hard life gets. Do not waver. Then he says, verse 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. Okay, he's talking about the church. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, 
And all the more as you see the day drawing near to the end of time, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what I take out of this is, first of all, um, we are to encourage one another in the body of Christ to grow in the Lord, to grow in their love, one of the fruits of the Spirit, and also try to encourage people not to drift, to neglect coming together. Now, I know there's seasons, like vacation, and there's other times in our life where maybe we need to step back for a bit, and the, the Lord Jesus understands all that. I mean, he's, he's gracious. He's gracious. The point is, this is the living house of God, not just this place, the body of Christ, churches all over the world, where we are fed, where we are fellowship. It is his bride. The church is the bride of Christ. And by the way, as a pastor for about 43 years, I'm going to tell you this. If the Lord Jesus is protective over anything, it's his bride, the church. Very, very protective. Always there. Willing to deal with what he needs to deal with. Willing to help people grow in him. This church is just not a building made out of mortar and sticks. It's actually God's house. And they're all over the world. And actually, the church is not a building. The church is us. We're the church. It's nice to be in a nice building, but we are the church. So he takes it very, very seriously. And he doesn't want people to drift as as it is. And I understand that when people get discouraged or maybe they feel the Lord is not working in their life and they pull away, well, I'm not going to go to that church. You know, he's just not working in my life. Uh, the more we do it, the easier it gets to stay away. It's a habit. So I'm not here chiding you to come to church more. I'm just saying this is the creed. And it's more than just a thing to do on Sunday. It's more of a place than to just visit your Facebook friends on Sunday. It's a lot more than that. It's the source of our life. The church. It's our family. Have you ever gone to another country or another state and run into another Christian? And you find out they're Christian? We know them already. We know them. It's right here. We believe the same. We may not talk the same language, but there's an instant connection. That's because through the ages and through the continents, those who have come to Christ and have joined together as a family are tied together from the first century till now. We're the church. Don't get into the habit of drifting because we need... One another in encouragement. You go, well, but I'm an introvert. And I would say, okay, you're an introvert. I'm an extrovert. What does that have to do with the command to be a part of the body of Christ? I know it's a little uncomfortable. It's still where we learn. It's where we grow. It's where God's grace is evident. And, of course, we're supposed to go in our closets on our own, too. I'm not minimizing the word of God and prayer on our own or in smaller groups. But introvert doesn't have anything to do with it. I know it makes you uncomfortable, but this is where we belong. Amen? Or wherever the church is that you go to. So the first reason is we need encouragement, and we motivate others as Christians. For the body of Christ, there's no such thing as uh, being an island. No man is an island when you're a Christian. No man is an island. I think the second reason, as I've already said, is the church is God's idea. Uh, turn to Matthew chapter uh, 28. Matthew chapter 28. It's the Great Commission. Very, very clear. This is his apostles. Christ is the foundation. The apostles carried on that foundation through the teaching of Jesus in their letters and epistles. 
Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Let's call it 16, actually. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority over the universe, heaven and earth, has been given to the Lord Jesus. Go therefore, I give you the authority now as the apostles, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The other reason is because this is the body of Christ. The body is referred to as the church, and the analogy is the physical anatomy that is all knit together. All of our parts are synchronized and work together. The gifts of the Holy Spirit synchronize the body of Christ and work together. And so we're together in this family, we're together in this body, and we function that way. We need each other. That's why Paul said in one uh, passage in 1 Corinthians, the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. Or the foot can't say to the arm, I'm more important than you. We are all equal. We function together. We need each other. It's like oxygen in the body of Christ. Here's a good verse. We read in Ephesians 4, From him the whole body, joined together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love, and each part does its work. I was reading books on you know this particular uh, part of the creed, and this one author said it in a very creative way. It's not, it's not the steeple, it's the people. I wanted to make that the, the, the name of my sermon, but I didn't. I just called it the church, the gates of hell will not prevail. We'll get to that. It's the people, not the steeple. It's not the building. It's you and I who are all joined to Christ through every ligament. He's the head. We're the body. Now, when we read that earlier, we said we believe in the church. That's a singular word, but we know that they're all over the world and millions upon millions of people. It doesn't say we believe in the churches. We believe in the church because there's only one church with a variety of characteristics and and uh, different, I wouldn't say belief systems, but different nuances. But if they've come to Christ through faith and they believe in the justification of the Lord Jesus Christ, their forgiveness, and they stake their lives on his word, that's the church. Singular. There's only one church and all of us are a part of it. It's the body of Christ. You know, it's just kind of like a family. We have so much in common, but a family. You think about the nuclear family, and frequently, parents, kids, um, you know, if the mother is blonde, we might have one or two blonde children. If the father has curly hair, we might have blonde curly children. Um, families have different traditions. Family has different ways they, they celebrate. Even their laugh is the same. My voice is exactly like my brother's voice. If my brother's not home and I call him, his wife thinks she's talking to my brother, me, him. I go, no, I'm your brother-in-law, Stacy. We sound exactly the same. Even, even, I'd never met my father until was, I was 10. I had the same whacked-out sense of humor he had. Never met the guy until I was 10. I, wa- I had the same gait he had, the way I walked. So there's family characteristics that we see in a family, same as the body of Christ. We have similar characteristics because of our faith. 
Um, the other thing is important to know is Christianity is a social religion. Now, some of you are fighting with that word already. I keep going back to the word religion. But James says that uh, pure religion is this. James calls our, calls our faith religion. The book of James, look at it. We get all up and up. No, it's a relationship. Well, it's both. It's a religion and a relationship. Christianity is a social religion, not a solitary religion. It involves people, God's people. It's essential. In the Old Testament, it was uh, Moses coming out of Egypt with God's people. They were in the wilderness for many, many years. God's people. And it's always been God's people. He would lead them into the promised land. They would become his chosen ones. That was the Old Testament. The New Testament is the church. The Old Testament were the believers in God's covenant family. The New Testament is the church, the body of Christ. We're still in now the new covenant. He's always called us to be together. It's social, spiritually social. A Greek father brought his uh, eldest son in, and he said, son, I want to share something with you. I want to teach you a lesson about something. So he told his son to bring in a bunch of sticks, about yay long, something like that, just a pile of sticks. He told his son, now, this is a good one to use with your own kids, guys. Uh, He told his son, now, I want you to just take about three or four of those, and I want you to break them. Snap, no problem. Now I want you to break about six or seven. A little bit more difficult. Got around it eventually. Now I want you to break 10 or 15. He couldn't do it, and his father said, that's family. That's family. Unbreakable when we're joined together as family. Unbreakable as the body of Christ. We're told, turn to Matthew 16, that even the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The church is the most important institution on earth, more important than marriage, more important than any other institution, the most important institution on, on earth. And the reason I can say this is because what we're going to read, what the Lord Jesus said to Peter... It's never been said about another institution by the Lord. And that is, even the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. It's never been said about any other institution. This, not this particular church, I'm talking about the body of Christ, is the most important institution in the world. Let's look at this. Matthew 16. Verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, is that where we went? Uh, Okay, Caesarea Philippi, when we were in Israel. Let me just stop right there. Beautiful place, 20 miles out of Israel, um, has a stream of water. Jesus with his disciples there. It was kind of cool to go to the same place. They had a big cave. And you could see on the walls outside the cave uh, embedded rock that was carved out. And some of the the oval shapes of those carvings were, are still there for the shrines of their pagan gods. Still there to this day. And that just happens to be where this occurred. This very thing occurred. It was very paganistic. There was kind of even a dark feel about it, just looking at this cave and these shrines and stuff like that. That's where Jesus brought his disciples that day. Okay? Now let's read it. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? 
Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, it's just very interesting that he's asking him who he is with all, the, with all these other um, places where they worship gods. They're looking right at these places. And he goes, now look at me. Look at me. Who do people say that I am? Peter pops up like he normally does and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him. This is the beginning of the church. Listen to this. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and by the way, his name Peter means rock. It's a play on words. Actually, his first name before Jesus changed his name was Simon, which I think means shifting sands, the unstable one. But when he came to Christ, he said, I'm changing your name to rock. I tell you, you are the rock. And on this rock, that was his confession, what he believed in Christ. On this rock, I will build whose church? My church. Why is this place important all over the world? Because it's his church that he shed his blood for. It's not just a place to hang. Stuff happens when we come into God's presence and we worship and fellowship and encourage one another. He said, I tell you, I will build my church his bride, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, uh, the gates of hell actually means the gates of death. So when I think of hell, I think of death. I think of eternal death that never ends, we're told. But it means death, and that makes sense. Death couldn't hold him in the grave, and he was the first fruits of many. You and I are the many. And just like we talked about the resurrection a few weeks ago here, just like the power of the resurrection brought him up out of those rags and through that stone bang, a living and glorified Christ. So the same for us. The gates of hell or death those chains were broken when Christ said it is finished. And they are broken the day we said yes to Jesus. Even the most powerful enemy, Paul says, the last and most powerful enemy we have is death. And Christ conquered that. Then he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What he's saying to his apostles is, I give you the authority. The keys are the authority. I give you the authority as I go back to my Father in heaven to unlock the door of hope of the gospel and to keep people shut out who don't believe the gospel. I give you the keys of the authority as my apostles. And so, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That probably takes too much time to go into, but I think it has to do with the keys. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one. It's a powerful church. It's a force that needs to be reckoned with. Satan's hands are bound. You are in a safe place tonight. You are not in a perfect place. You are in a safe place tonight. Jesus is our Lord. Do we have problems in the church? Yes. Um, but that's because of who we are. 
We're people. We still gravitate towards the flesh sometimes. You are in a safe place because it's his church. Not perfect. Safe. Although it has a lot less problems than I've seen in other churches that I've been a part of. It's a a good place here. Um, They've been given the keys and the authority. This is another passage I hear. What's the essential value of the body of Christ? Um, Well, as I said, the church is God's idea, but in our statement, we read that the church is holy. Holy. Holy means set apart by God, and it makes us different from those that are not believers. His church... His bride is precious, protected, precious, adored. The church is holy, which means he sets us apart like the day you and your bride, if you've been married, got married. From that moment, sir, that bride was set apart for you and you alone and vice versa. So the church means that we are set apart and distinct from people that are unbelievers in the world. A lot of those unbelievers think we're Jesus freaks and we're weird. Doesn't matter, does it? No. Yet, when the world falls out from beneath their feet, who do they go to? Who do they go to? Their family members that are Christians. Or someone that they work with. It's a safe place. We have the Spirit of Christ. We're to be safe. We read that we're also in union with Christ. He lives in us. We live in Him. And so, the reason that the body of Christ is so alive and vibrate vibrant, is we have have the living Christ inside of us. And it is his church. It's not a dead church. Um, There's only one people of God. There's only one church. And there's only one Lord. The Greek word for church is ecclesia, which means those that are called out from the world. Chosen are called out and set apart from the world. Because Christ. For a vital kingdom task, we're called, we're his subjects. He's the king. He's the royal king of kings and lord of lords and we're his subjects. And we serve him gladly. Two major tenets of faith for the church is justification. When the Lord forgave us, it was a legal forgiveness, and we are now forgiven forever. And our standard, God's truth, the Word of God. There's many tenets and beliefs, but those are the two major ones. We see that the church is universal. I've already talked about that. Everywhere, every place. The apostolic church we talk about. The authority figures and teachers Jesus put in place. Christ shed his blood. And the church is the center of God's kingdom. I just want to talk a little bit, turn to Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, about the communion of the saints. Communion means common. What we have in common. How we're joined together. So turn to Acts chapter 2. Because this is the first snapshot after the day of Pentecost of how the church functioned. Little different than we do today, but there's the common thing is that they had things in common, and that was Christ. They, of course, were under severe persecution, and uh, many of them that came to Christ lost everything. Coming from Jewish families that didn't believe Christ was the Messiah, they lost their families that fast. 
all of their relatives gone. That fast. And on top of that, they were persecuted by the Romans. And it got worse with time. I've talked to you many times about the catacombs under Rome's, where they spent a lot of their time hiding and having communion, and there's still etchings on the walls there in those catacombs to this day. Fish symbols, bread symbols, cross symbols, to this day. Go to Rome. You'll never regret it. Um, Look at verse 42. This is the first snapshot of how the church functioned. Now, the terminology is amazing. You're going to read together. We're going to go to chapter 4 as well, but you're going to read together. uh, We're going to read together that they were frequently all together. Words that we'll see. They had everything in common. They attended the temple day and night. They had both, they had two forms of gatherings. They had the synagogue or temple still, but they also had house churches. So they could only go so far, I'm sure, in the synagogue, obviously, with Christ, the Jewish synagogue. And that's when they met in their house churches, when it was still safe and the persecution wasn't about, around, and they met in house churches. Okay? They ate together. They had meals together. They had communion together. They, they were of one heart and soul. Let's read it. Chapter, verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves... That refers to a heart, life, commitment, and passion to learn from the apostles. Passion. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread. That's, those are meals and communion and prayers. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Okay, something very prevalent then. The Lord can still heal today. Way more prevalent then. The Lord had gifted them with many of these gifts. Um, okay, where am I? Verse uh, 44. And all who believed were together. There's that word again. They were together and they had all things in common. Their faith, their love for Christ, some of their situations. The word common actually means to share. So there was a sharing going on back and forth. Like a family. Like a potluck every night kind of thing. And all who believed were together and they had all things in common and they were selling, listen to this one, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any who had needs. Now it didn't say that they were selling all of their possessions. Obviously they had their possessions as a family. But they sold what they could sell. Paul says in Corinthians when he talks about giving to the church, it's the New Testament model of what we would call tithing in the Old Testament. Read it, 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, principles on how to give in the New Testament church, 8 and 9. You can tithe if you want, but there's some nice principles there as well. Um, they, They gave, and he says, you're to give now, Sacrificially, yes, but according to your ability, not to what you don't have, according to your ability. This little sidebar on giving to the church, which we don't talk a lot about, a little sidebar on it. The Lord would never want you to not pay Pacific Power and give to the church. The Lord would never 
want you to not pay your debts to someone who gave you a loan in order to give to the church. Okay? We take care of our responsibilities. That's a part of the integrity of a Christian man or woman. We're supposed to live above reproach and have good name in our community. We don't steal. We pay back what we owe. Yes? That's kind of basic. So, but they, they were told to give as it was appropriate with their ability. Not what they didn't have. And there's no room for guilt. There's no room for guilt. If you have it, and the Lord puts it on your heart, give it. If you don't have it, don't give it. Guilt-free. It's a gracious proposition. It's supposed to create joy. Okay? So, they sold some of their belongings and possessions and distributed the proceeds to all who had need. Cool place. Awesome. Once again, they've lost their families and their income. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Can you imagine the joy that was there? They called them the agape feast. Agape means the love of Christ. They called them the agape feast, and they did it all the time. Praising God and having favor with all the people. In other words, Jesus said they will know you by your love for one another. People in the community would watch these different set-apart kind of people. They at first were called the way. Then I think they were called the followers of the way or the sect of the way. Then they eventually were called Christians. And they watched these people care for one another and God gave them favor even with the outsiders to watch how they treated one another. Amazing. Amazing. And the Lord, listen to this, they loved one another, they taught the word of God among one another, they ate meals with one another, they had generous hearts with one another. What's the last verse say? And the Lord added to their number daily, day by day, those who were being saved. He's building his church. Let's go to chapter 4. Verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to them was his own, but they had everything in common. Different take. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and great grace was upon them all. I mean, this was not very long after the Lord was raised. Not very long wasn't long after the day of Pentecost. Pentecost was 50 days after the resurrection. Was it 50? 40? 50? After his death, rather. So this was right away. And when they taught in Jerusalem, there was 3,000 people there. Gave their life to Christ, 3,000 people. Started off with 120 in the upper room, 3,000 people. And then later on, another couple thousand came. Because their testimony was new. Now they're talking about the resurrection of Jesus. That's what validated Christ's work. I've talked to you about that before. His death on the cross was for our sins. But the resurrection was God's validation that he received that gift that his son gave. There was not a needy person among them. Not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. So there were some people that sold quite a bit. And laid it at the apostles' feet. 
and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So those are some passages, folks, that validate why we believe in the church as our creed. It's the living church of Christ. It's not just a building with mortar and sticks, and this is why it's our life. Now, some of you say, well, you could say that. You're a pastor here, Bill. You're supposed to say that. When I came to Christ, I was so elated and excited, I didn't even know that I was supposed to go to church. And finally, I had some friends that participated in sharing the gospel with me and says, say, you know, you might want to go to church. And I go, why? I believe in Jesus. I can't, I can't even contain myself. I'm so excited with Jesus. Why do I got to go to church? And then they explained it. And I went to church. And after that, I, I went to church for years before I became a pastor. Every time I could. So it's nothing to do with me being a pastor. It happens to be what God's called me to do. But that's not why I'm saying this is important, obviously. It's because it's in the Word of God. Amen? I close with this. Christ is the foundation of the church. Now, I've asked um, workers, I do work in local government a lot, and, I, and I've been around contractors and public works and places like this. And uh, sometimes I, I give an example about a foundation of building a house. So I've, any contractors here or builders here at all? A couple of you there? Okay. So I, I usually ask contractors or those that are familiar with, you know, uh, grading out the ground and putting a foundation in and so on and so forth, how much room for um, out of level, let's say on a 2,000-square-foot house, so you've got a 2,000-square-foot frame, how much out of level on those two-by-fours that go around, you know, those are forms, two-by-fours that go around, how much out of level do they allow in order to build that home and have a good, solid home? And a lot of them have laughed at me for even the question, but that's the story of my life anyway. So most of them have said 16th of an inch. What do you think? Not even that? 16th? Less? Oh, you'll even go a quarter, a quarter of an inch. Okay. Now, so they'll allow, and then, of course, they can shimmy, and then they can make up for it and do all that stuff. But you can't be that, there can't be that much of a gap in the foundation of the house. Okay? Christ is our foundation. The house is the church. It's built on him. He is truth. 100% truth. And he said, I am truth and the truth will set you free. Right? So we're all built on his very plumb, very level, without fault foundation. So the contractors would tell me then that if the foundation isn't level... As you build the frame upon that foundation, the higher you go, the more lopsided it gets. Doors don't fit right. Windows don't shut right. Cracks in the wall, but we get that anyway in our area. Cracks in the wall eventually. Nothing goes right. I use this as an example for marriage. If honesty and truth isn't the base of your marriage, and I'm talking honesty and truth all the time. Like a godly couple doesn't have, doesn't have the justification or the luxury to even lie one time. Yes? No? Maybe so. Maybe so, as the Jews would say. So, the foundation of your home is Christ. The foundation of your home is truth. 
and honesty with your spouse. Nothing hidden, no lies. Now your life before you met your spouse is under the blood of Christ. Keep it there. I'm talking about marriage on. We're like this. It's a picture of the body of Christ. Actually, Paul, when he talks about marriage, he talks about Christ and his church. Ephesians chapter 5. Very similar. So I tell a couple that if you don't have the foundation of honesty and trust and belief in one another, Christ leading your marriage, your marriage goes like this. And things start to get wonky. So I have couples come to me and there's been a deficiency or there's been a a moral collapse. And I say, guess what? Your house is coming down. We're tearing your house down. The marriage as you knew it is gone. We're going to build a new foundation. Whoever had the moral collapse is going to be accountable and honest. And on that truth, you're going to rebuild your marriage relationship. And it's going to be solid and safe. And you're going to love it. Same as the body of Christ. God is building his church on the foundation of his son. And it's a mighty church. And the gates of hell will never prevail. And you and I are safe. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your church. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you shed your blood for your bride, the church. You died to provide a door open to salvation. But you also died specifically for your bride. And Lord, we we do feel safe. We do feel safe. We thank you for our family. Some of us in this room tonight, we're closer with each other than our own biological families because we're united in you. And while we're on that subject, we do pray for our families. We love them. We're very, very concerned, many of us. And we pray just in your winsome, powerful way you would bring them to the Lord Jesus as well so we can be united with them on that level someday. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for Trail and for all the churches around the world, Lord, that call themselves the church, the foundation of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.